Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, internet surfers. It's time to paddle out and catch the tech talk and wave for the next 45 minutes and ride it all the way into the shore with our very own Mark Opalupo of the digital world. Matthew Dickerson. And here he is, wringing the salt out of his virtual dreadlocks. It's Matthew Dickerson. Yo, dude. <laughs> Are we hanging five or ten this week? I'm not quite sure. But it is interesting that you mentioned the whole idea of surfing the wave, because I do often talk about that, where if you want to try and stop technology, it's like standing at the edge of the ocean, standing on the beach, yeah. putting your hand up saying, waves don't come in, yeah. and you're going to get knocked over by those people on their surfboards who are going to come <laughs> screaming in. So you can either try and stop the waves or get on or board and be part of it. And that's what I'm absolutely at is be on board. Well, I'm finding that um, I'm having to reevaluate my ideas about chat GPT after our conversations <laughs> in previous weeks, and I think it's going to be a case of going to have to embrace it. Well, I did actually hear a good comment from a listener during the week, and they said the easiest way, now it sounds easy, but they said the easiest way for you to check whether ChatGPT has been used in an answer is to actually give you, like, get ChatGPT to answer the question that you've set. For you. Yeah and, yeah, and then compare the answer you get from that well, I, from I, any of your students' answers and see if they suddenly look identical. <laughs> That's right. Well, maybe, you know, just before the assignment's due, you just, well, a day or two before, you'd say, okay, now here in my hand is the chat GPT answer. <laughs> Does anyone want to risk it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, and that's interesting too. I'm not convinced that chat GPT would give you the same answer each time. Logically, yeah, you'd think it would. Logically, it's a computer algorithm that you say, here's A and B. Logically, C follows. But is the AI and chat GPT clear enough well, that it modifies itself and learns more as it goes? So you could ask the same question three times <laughs> and you get a different oh, answer. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, yeah, you know, like... Okay, so maybe it'll write a different essay, slightly different each time, but there'd be chunks of it that would be similar enough. Where Surely. You go, Look at that. Look at yours. <laughs> but you don't have to tell the students that. You can no, just, no, no. as you said, hold just up. Hold it up and say, does anyone want a chance there are? <laughs> that's right. I like, I like that. <laughs> now, the other thing that's been happening this week is interesting. I do find the concept that people sometimes come up with to block or talk down technology Really interesting. I was at an organisation recently where they'd installed some new EV chargers and a simple photo. I just chucked a photo up on mm. social media that had me plugged into this new charger and just said, oh, it's great to see some chargers installed some here. Some good news. Exactly right. Simple, good news, more chargers means it's going to be better for all of us as we go ahead. And there were about 90, maybe even 100 comments. So you think that's great, people are on board. But the majority, the vast majority of those comments were oh no, these EVs create a trip hazard. <laughs> In an age where we've just forsaken all personal responsibility? Apparently. <laughs> and of course, some people pointed out that maybe when you're filling up a good old petrol car at the Bowser, well, if that's a trip hazard uh, with this lead, then that would be course. a trip hazard as well. But of course, you're not standing there beside your EV while you're charging up because you're having a nice cup of coffee or mm. walking the streets doing some shopping while your car is charging. None of this standing around waiting for your car to fill up. So the trip hazard was the main thing. So we've got to solve that problem now too before we can get people adopting EVs apparently. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> I know, oh, well. I know. Maybe just you can watch where you're going when you know that you're around um, charging sites. Well, maybe just 
watch where your feet go in general. You Sometimes don't have to even there walk. might be cracks in the ground or little things sticking up there. A, a branch might have fallen off a tree. So mm. my advice in general would be to watch where you walk. Is that too simple an advice? And if you're really worried, maybe don't walk in between the car and the charger. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's not really a thoroughfare, is it, normally where you see chargers there? It's normally somewhere where you've got a car park. Anyway. <laughs> but, but actually, sorry, what was interesting about that was there were, as you see, at the back of most car parks, there were little concrete blocks that were mounted on the ground to stop people going too far in their of car course. park. Yeah, that apparently isn't a trip hazard. That no, seems to no. sit up much higher off the ground, and it seems to be much more solid than a cable. But <laughs> no one mentioned the trip hazard about those particular blocks of concrete. That well, I've tripped over there. them before too. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Watch where you walk. There's a complication. <laughs> All right, we better dive into this uh, this episode this week. Last week, we brought you the good news about a shift in sedan sales with the Tesla Model Y taking line honours for 2022 here in Australia. Well, along the same lines on a global scale, EV sales around the world are growing and the stats are significant, Matt. I don't like to be a pedant, but we actually talked about the Model 3 topping the sales last week. Oh, not sorry, the not y, the Model Y. But you'd be surprised because Model Y does seem okay. to gain more publicity. And I'd, okay. I'd guarantee that this year... I was sure I read Y in my notes last week, but anyway. <laughs> so Model Y will top it this year, I guarantee. But Model 3, only because the Model Y was so hard to get last year. So well, Model 3 is a cheaper model too, isn't it? Model 3 is a little bit cheaper. It's been around for a bit longer, but everyone wants that slightly larger SUV style Model Y. Mm. So this year, so you're just getting ahead of yourself there. Mm. Model Y will top it this year, okay. I, I guarantee. But All right, we'll Model save that 3 last sound bite for this time next year. <laughs> That's right. But yes, you're right. Across the world, there's momentum gathering, not so much in Australia. We'll come back to Australia, but across the world, some pretty exciting numbers coming out. So 10% market share for the first time. So it's hit 10% mm. market share, mainly driven by China and Europe. Not driven by Australia, definitely not driven no. by Australia, and not even driven by the US. So there's a sort of bit of a lag there in the US. But it's interesting because you've got this increase in EV sales while the broader car market in general had a bit of a drop. So not a huge drop, but it was a, a little bit of a drop overall. So you see some of the more traditional manufacturers and their sales dropped a bit, which they went, oh no, this is bad news. But companies that were focused on some of their EV sales started to go up. When you start to look at the numbers, though, you start to get some impressive numbers. 7.8 million EVs were sold mm. last year. That's wow. getting pretty good. That's an increase of 68% over the previous year. Admittedly, it's a lower base that it's going from, but an increase of 68%, nonetheless, is not too bad. Europe had an increase, sorry, Europe accounted for 11% of the overall sales. China, 19% of overall sales. So, mm. in other words, 90% of all cars sold in China were EVs last year. So, they're getting there. Yeah, and that, that's not su that surprising. I mean, China can really jump on uh, technology like this and, they can. and run with it. And they'll become a bit leaders. In and that. they've got a big population. So, when yeah. it becomes a percentage point change for China, that's a lot of numbers. Plug-in hybrids, if you added those in with EV sales in Europe, for example, then you got over 20% across Europe. But I like to focus on just the EVs in general. You're a purist. I am a purist, that's right. When you look at the US, they certainly lag behind. The numbers sound all right, 807,000 EVs sold in the US last year, but it's only 5.8% of all sales, which is up from 3.2% the previous year. Mm. Now, when you consider Australia, is it about 3%? So they just hit 3% in Australia last year in 2022. So if you look at that and compare that to the US, well, the US basically doubled almost from 3.2 to 5.8. So maybe there's a bit of hope for us this year. Maybe we could get from that 3% last year up to maybe 6% or even more if 
if we do that. But again, you see that Tesla's still the world's dominant EV maker, but some of the more conventional automakers are starting to get more models out there and mm. starting to really mix up the competition, which is great. That's what we need, obviously. In Germany, they had 25% of all new vehicles produced last year were EVs. And in December, more EVs were sold than conventional cars. So it started That's to... catching on. It's right. They started and, to and people up. are saying, yeah, I'm pretty happy with my EV, you know, and... Um, Runs well, and the electricity is cheaper than the gasoline. Yeah, that's and that's right. The running costs, the enjoyment driving costs, all those things. So new car sales overall fell 1%. So again, when you look at those sales increases, then it's good to see that as a comparison against traditional uh, vehicle sales. And then when you look at the market leaders, so Tesla number one, BYD, Build Your Dream is yeah. apparently what that stands for. I don't know if someone just I, made that up. Or I think we'll be hearing more of that name. I think we will. So they're number two in the world at the moment. It's a Chinese oh, manufacturer. Go. Wow. Um, SAIC Motor Corp is number three. They're Chinese as well. And then VW, number four. Notice there's no Toyota in there. And yeah. again, they've got a fair bit of work to We've do. We've talked about that before. In the US, Ford was second to Tesla. Then Hyundai and Kia were the next ones in there. So some mm. interesting brands in there, interesting names. It's going to look... And the Hyundai electric car is the Genesis model, isn't it? It's Well, that's the luxury version oh, of right, it. Okay. So Hyundai do have... Because we, we had a look at some of those cars <laughs> when we were in Melbourne and uh, we had to wipe off our drool. <laughs> they, they looked very nice, they yeah. very nice. So I've got a Hyundai EV. I've got a Hyundai Onix 5, for example. So Hyundai do make their own EVs. Kia also make their own EVs. But then Genesis is a luxury mm. brand as well. So you've got some of those more traditional... I would say, progressive manufacturers who are starting to get into it, and they don't like it. I'm sure if you're a, a Ford motor company with all the history going back to Henry Ford, I'm sure you don't like these little upstarts, the BYDs, the mm. Teslas coming along, taking away your market share. Who do you think you are? I'm mm. the major market share supplier in this country. What are you doing coming along? So I think they'll really be getting on there. Ford, obviously, you've got the F-150 Lightning. And so that's a big deal, isn't it? The F- it F-150. Is. Um, and that's just the first of the electronic uh, well, utes that's right. models that, that they'll make. They'll and I think they're Mac-E, they're Mustang. They'll mm. certainly go okay with that. So interesting market, but getting to 10%, you know, that mm. momentum's gaining, gaining, and we think that's a pretty good increase to 10% market share this year. Gee, if I was going out on a limb, I'd say I wouldn't be surprised if we double that, and I wouldn't be surprised if we got to tw- – that's a big number, 20%. <laughs> Maybe I'm going too far there. But <laughs> Here we go, folks. Are you writing this down? Yeah, actually, speaks? I'm, I'm yeah. going to go with it. I'm going to, say, I'm going to say 20% market share by the end of 2023. It just oh, seems wow. like people are – getting onto it, that people are understanding it. And if petrol prices get going up, mm. then people are going to sit there and say, I need an alternative that's better than the current alternative. Kitchen waste disposal is evolving. I remember in the 90s jamming our waste foodstuffs into a separate sink, pressing a button that woke a sleeping sarlacc below. That's one for the um, Return of the Jedi fans. There was a whole lot of gargling and grinding noises and the or- Organic waste, it just disappeared. I'm pretty sure it was then drained straight into the magma in the mantle layer after that or something. Out of sight, out of mind at least. Last decade, we all received green bins and anything biological went straight into that. Then that was removed by enormous magic truck, out of sight, out of mind again. Well, kitchen waste is about to grow into something new once again. Matt. 
tell us what we have to look forward to here. Did you ever almost get your fingers caught in that munching machine? It was always a worry because <laughs> they were menacing noises. That sarlacc, when he started to eat, is like, yes, You just back. knew, didn't you? If you just put any little bit of your finger near there, you yeah. lose it very quickly. People it's with long hair, tight back, you know, oh, yeah, nightmares. <laughs> so we've got a little bit of an advancement over that, and this is a bin. This is the future I'm going to say here, the future of bins in our kitchen. So you're right. We've got organic bins, green bins, green waste, etc. It's get a great idea. Great it's idea. Well, well uh, not I always hope. is part of the problem because where does it go? Is it actually recycled properly or are we still trying to work that part out once mm. the truck takes it away? Are we trying to work out how we actually recycle our green waste? And so does some of it end up in landfill, even though you and I think we're doing the right thing and mm. we've got our separate bins and we've got our three separate bins, our recycling and our green waste and our normal waste products, and we're doing all the right things, and then do they all just end up in the same spot? Well, this is it. It's, it's for all our, all our waste, it's just out of sight, out of mind, isn't it? That's right, and we don't really know where it goes. But this one here, what I love about this concept is we do know what's happening with it. So we've got a bin, it's called a mill, M-I-L-L. And essentially what happens is you put your organic waste in there. So any of your food scraps, any of those things that you might put in your green bin, you would put in this bin in the kitchen. But in the middle of the night, it then goes to work. And it actually grinds away. It's got some little paddles inside. It's got some heat, some light, some magic that happens. <laughs> and you get up in the morning, as long as it hasn't woken you up during the middle of the night, and you get up in the morning and you've just got basically a brownish sort of powderish meal. Compost. Well, kind of, but it's designed to be fed to chickens. Oh, right. You don't have to buy some chickens then to feed it to it if you (laughs) you don't want to because what they've also done in terms of designing this whole solution is they've done a deal with, again, this is in the US at the moment, done a deal with the US Postal Service where they'll come and pick up your brownish stuff and it gets taken away to actually be used in chicken allotments or chicken. Oh, that's great news. Chicken feedlot. So essentially, all that stuff that is in your bin becomes nutrition to remain in the circle of life. And that's where the creators of this bin have said, we've got to start thinking about those food scraps not as waste, because that's how we think about them now. Think of those food scraps as nutrition, just maybe change into some other form of nutrition. As opportunity. Yeah, that's right. Now, you could use them around the home if you had some chickens. Probably you could put it on your garden as well, but the most effective use, they say, is to feed it to an animal. And when they do take it back, the US Postal Service takes it back to head office, they then go through and do some further treatment. They've got all these ones that come in, further treatment on it to make sure that it's all right, it's the right nutrition, ingredients, etc., to then go out to chicken feedlots and away you go. So it's a great idea and you're treating it at the front rather than at the back end of the whole process. Wow, coming mm. to a kitchen near you. Quite possibly. It is the first waste receptacle that I've been able to find that has an electrical plug, Bluetooth, and a Wi-Fi connection for software <laughs> updates. So, <laughs> so what I do like about those, presumably, I could be on an app on my phone and see exactly what's happening with my composting in my kitchen. <laughs> Those of us who miss the regular judgment fighters at us as teenagers about our poor posture from a critical parent, the good news is that technology has come to the rescue. You can now pick up an office chair that will pass judgment on how you're sitting. Matt 
does this come with sharp pointy objects that dig into your sides to make you sit up straight or what? They've tried some chairs like this that have had vibrating sensors to vibrate if you're sitting incorrectly and so you obviously keep moving around until you finally get to that spot where it stopped vibrating. This one doesn't do that. This one sends information to an app on your phone so it can give you more advice about exactly how you're sitting and how you should change that. Now part of this is that the World Health Organisation says that 1.7 billion people have back pain, essentially. And a lot of that, they say, is caused by the way we sit because we spend way too much time these days Mm. sitting in a chair and maybe we get a bit tired, we slump a bit, we crouch over, we do all sorts of things. So these testers, when they were working on this, this is at Huawei Technologies, they were working on this, they actually worked out 15 different postures. I didn't know there was that many different ways to sit. (laughs) 15 different postures in the way that we sit. You're leaning to the left or you're leaning to the right or you're leaning back or you're actually sitting upright and sitting correctly. And of all those, then they've worked with some medical experts to say which ones of these are good ways to sit for your back, for your back health, for your body health, and which ones should we alert the person to say that you're not quite sitting correctly. What I do or what I'm interested in is you go, you made vague mention of the point that you might have a parent or a teacher saying, Jimmy, stop slouching in the chair there. Well, are we going to listen to a phone more than we listen to our parents or our teachers? And the answer is probably yes. (laughs) I think most people would listen to their phone more. It tells them an alert that they... Well, the hope is that the the human's going to take the hint and just go away eventually. (laughs) But the phone takes no hint. It doesn't, doesn't until you silence the alerts and stop the kid coming up. So maybe you'll get some advice from that. But I think what the app, and I haven't seen the actual app, but I think what the app will do as well is give you some advice to say, you're sitting like this, try sitting like this. Maybe an electric shock. (laughs) Maybe, maybe forget the vibration, maybe the electric (laughs) shock. But again, we keep talking about it. Health is such a part of our, such a big part of our future in technology. Mm. And there are so many ways that, we haven't thought of yet that we're going to see technology and health interact to improve our health as our lifestyles deteriorate and we sit in our chair more often, we don't get outside as often and we sit around and do nothing, then this is the way to try and help that problem. And a stitch in time saves nine, so maybe a little bit of an alert might just get you to wake up to yourself. No one really wants to think of their own mortality. And certainly not the mortality of loved ones. Sounds like the start of an infomercial, doesn't it, folks? Relax, we're not selling funeral insurance, though, today. But how we memorialise, let me get my tongue around that word, how we memorialise the dead may be about to take a futuristic turn. So listen to this and have a think about how you'd like to be remembered while Matt gives you some ideas in the voice of Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) Sorry, I can't do Edgar. (laughs) I don't even know how it sounded. I imagine it was something like Christopher Lee. Uh, Something very serious, I would imagine. James Earl Jones or someone. Yeah, Yeah. deep and serious. (laughs) One of the things that we've talked about on a previous version of Tech Talk was having an interaction with the person who's just died at a funeral. Mm. So you have a screen, you go over and talk to that screen and you've answered some questions before you died so that you can get sensible answers to lots of questions. That sounds interesting, a little bit freaky, creepy yeah. maybe at a funeral, but... We're uh, sort of walking a tightrope here, aren't we? We are indeed. About what is it touching and what becomes creepy. That's right. And now this one is a little bit different. There's a couple of options here. One of them is that there are companies out there now making smart plaques for a headstone. So you put a smart plaque on there, which basically means it's got a QR code because that's 
means it's smart, doesn't it, these days, if it's got a QR yeah. code, QR code or Bluetooth maybe, and that scanning of that QR code will take you to an online site that will have information about the person who's died. Now, when I've looked at some of this information and read some interviews with people that have actually participated in this, they said the hardest part of getting content on the site was that you went through the grieving process again. So you've mm. lost your loved one and then they put in their will, for example, that they want to be memorialised in this way. And then you're going through and you're uploading photos and videos and all sorts of things. So you're going through that grieving again and again. But once you get through that, they said they love the idea that you can actually go through on birthdays, anniversaries, scan that QR code, go to a dedicated site that's got all that information about them. But I also love the idea of maybe grandchildren that didn't see that particular person, great-grandchildren, mm. relatives in 50 years, 100 years' time that had no recollection, had no knowledge of that person, but they're seeing that person and hearing about that yeah. person. So I like that idea. I mean, we've got some gravestones, some Dickersons came to Australia back around the 1840s, 1850s, and so there's one small town cemetery nearby where there's a few Dickerson headstones, and so I take the kids there sometimes and we look around those. I have no idea about those people. I find Dickerson headstones, and I go, oh, look, here's another one here, and I wonder how they fitted in, and I wonder what this person was like. But imagine going forward 100 years' time, seeing a mm. Dickerson headstone and going, oh, let's just scan the QR code. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Oh, he's got hair the same as yours or whatever it might be. <laughs> so that's certainly one way of doing it. I've got some questions around the legacy of that. So when I say in my will, I want a dedicated site that's got all this information to my family, please spend some time uploading the best photos or maybe I've already done that. But then there's obviously some cost. Someone's got to run that site. So how do I leave enough money in my will to make sure that in perpetuity yeah. that site is going to exist. How does that company that's running that guarantee that it's not just going to run for the next two or three years? And you probably don't want to pay 100 years up front or 1,000 years up front. How do you have that equation? So I don't know the answer to those questions. Because you'd hope it would just run indefinitely. But then how many websites to, have gone defunct? Well, that's, yeah. someone's got to pay for that. Someone's got to yeah. pay for some service base somewhere to house all that. And then what about if the person that you left as the executive of your will, one day they might die, and then if they're meant to keep paying for that forever, well, who does it then? And who's got access to the site? So if I say, James, you're the executive of my will, and you've got permission to access that site, and then one day you're gone, and then who's got control? Who's got the passwords? Uh, yeah. There's all these questions. Anyway, that's one part so of it. So many things. The other, so I do like the concept there. Again, a few issues there, but... One of the other ones is there are companies coming out, out with grave site media. Now, this one's a bit more complicated because grave this one media. has a screen built into the gravestone. So as you walk up to the headstone, or the gravestone, sorry, the headstone, if you walk up to the headstone, it'll pop to life. And here's Matthew <laughs> talking to you from the grave, a little video that I might have recorded, some information, stand here and chat to me and hear about me, which again, imagine going through yeah. a cemetery late at night. Late at night, that was exactly <laughs> what I was just thinking. <laughs> on that shortcut home from the pub and someone starts talking someone to you. Thinking, what? But the, the problem <laughs> I have with this one is that the minor issue with maintaining a website is one thing, but maintaining a physical screen, mm. maintaining technology on a headstone, that technology is going to wear exposed out some stage. Exposed to the UV light. Exactly, all those problems. So I can see yeah. that one being a much more difficult one to actually maintain for a long period of time. Mm. But it's interesting how much we're focusing on how we keep the memory of some of these people. And it's not just about some of those people that might know you. 
for someone that might have known you well, if you jump forward five or ten years, you could probably start to forget what that person looked like and how mm. they sounded. You'd have those memories in your mind, but it'd be nice to see those memories. So it's a whole new area. It's a whole new exploration area, I think, in terms of how we'll do that. And again, I don't know the answer to some of those questions, but I find it absolutely fascinating. And here's a story that would have had multimillionaire tycoon of the 50s, Howard Hughes, positively frothing. Now, there was one guy who loved his planes big and futuristic. We've talked about the handicap for electric planes being their excessive weight and how the answer may be in hydrogen-powered flight. So the race is well and truly underway for the record for the largest hydrogen aircraft to take to the air. And it's recently been extended to a 19-seater, people. Now, Matt, this is happening right now, and it's exciting. Hydrogen-powered air flight. As we speak, Zero Avia, Z-E-R-O-A-V-I-A, look them up. They're successfully testing, which is always nice to see a successful yeah. test of an aircraft rather than an unsuccessful test. They're successfully testing a hydrogen electric engine on a 19-seat aircraft, as you said. At this stage, what they do is they have one of the two propellers powered by hydrogen, the other one powered conventionally. Obviously, two-engine aircraft typically can fly on one mm. and one engine, so they can go up and they can fly. They can turn off the petrol engine or the kerosene, whatever the, the fuel that's used there, the conventionally fueled uh, engine, and run with the hydroelectric engine and test that as much as they like. And if something happens and it doesn't quite work and they go, gee, that worked great on the ground, but now at 15,000 feet, it's not working, mm. then they've got the other engine to continue to power it. So I think that's quite a sensible way to do the testing, but the fact that we've actually got to the stage where we've got 19-seaters up there flying, they're doing 10-minute test flights, they're not doing long flights yet, but this is all part of that race for aircraft, for airlines to get to that net zero, which is a tough gig for them because mm. one of the biggest things that they need and one of their biggest expenses is fuel, and they've got all these aircraft that are based around normal, traditional or conventional fuels. So it's getting there. It's getting exciting. The next thing they want to do is keep paving the way, get certification for this aircraft and keep paving the way and getting up to a 90-seat aircraft and obviously keep growing it. Keep in mind that conventional aircraft have had maybe 100 years, close to 100 years to develop the engines they've got now. So they've become very efficient, very sophisticated, very reliable. We're at the very beginning of all that for hydrogen electric and and when i say that we're not quite at the beginning because a hydrogen electric engine is really an electric engine and all it's doing is rather than carrying a bunch of batteries which you mentioned the weight of those is a bit of a killer for aircraft they're just carrying hydrogen and a little battery and the hydrogen has been converted to electricity to mm. then keep that battery powered up to then power the electric engine so it's really just an electric engine and we know how simple they are, and we know how reliable they are. There's not much in them compared to a normal engine, a normal conventional engine in an aircraft. So that's all pretty exciting. Reliability-wise, I can see that being fantastic. We've just got to get to the point where we can get the aircraft with the confidence to fly at the various heights it needs to fly at with hydrogen, and then the Holy Grail is producing the hydrogen in a green way. Because mm. at the moment, you use lots of power. That power can come from coal-fired power plants, although... Most people that I read about that are doing testing with hydrogen 
are committing to producing, at least for the testing phase, initially producing that hydrogen in some green way from some sort of renewable power. And there would have to be people out there right now who are looking for ways to do this effectively and efficiently in a green way. Absolutely right. It's just scale. That's all it is at the moment. There are ways to do it. It's just a matter of scaling up and having enough renewable power to be able to produce the amount of hydrogen that we need. But there are plans, you're absolutely spot on, there are plans from people with very deep pockets around the world who say that hydrogen is the next oil. So if we can work out a way to produce net zero hydrogen wherever, it doesn't have to be under the ground like oil was. It could be Mm. wherever we can produce renewable power. That gives us a lot more scope. So let's see how we can go about that. So yeah, that problem will be solved. I think while people are working on the aircraft to fly with hydrogen, there are people simultaneously working on producing the hydrogen that aircraft will need. We'll hear more news about this, I reckon, very, very soon. Okay, future alarmists, this is your cue to lean in and grab hold of your angry stick and start brandishing it as Matt talks you through a list of jobs most likely to reduce employment numbers for humans as AI, robot technology and big data march forwards and upwards. I want to go back and look at Luddites. I always had this inkling that the term Luddite came from a very interesting place. So I did a bit of quick research on that. And if you lived around Nottinghamshire, Yorkshire or Lancashire, or Lancashire, around 1811 to 1817, you'd be very familiar with the term Luddite. So it was really the birth of the Industrial Age, wasn't it? Exactly right. And part of that involved machines. But there were a particular group of very skilled people in textiles who felt that these new machines, this whole industrial revolution thing, was going to take their jobs away. So they formed bands of Luddites and they would go and do the obvious thing, which was destroy the machinery. So all this (laughs) textile machinery that was there working away, making the factories more efficient was being destroyed in the dead of night. So then... The and surely no one would want to repair those machines. No, no. They, they <laughs> thought the solution was destroy the machinery. They wouldn't think about repairing or replacing it. They just have to employ these skilled textile workers. Some people argued that they were concerned about unskilled people producing inferior products, but the reality was they were just worried about their jobs. Mm. And that's the challenge that we all have whether it's back in 1811 when we wanted to destroy textile-producing machinery, or now, the challenge is, well, again, you can try and stand there and stop those waves coming in, or you can say, it's going to happen. I'm going to get knocked over by the wave, so how can I change my job, my skills? How can I adapt to the new world Mm. of technology? But I did look at some jobs in particular that I thought might be threatened by where we're going. And when you think about it, it's probably... Okay, And I I think about, for example, the old switchboard operator. Do we really think we'd prefer to have someone still sitting there on the switchboard? I'm sure they were very pleasant people. But listening into your conversation. (laughs) Well, that as well. (laughs) I wasn't going there. I was just thinking that you ring through and you say, G'day, James. How are you going? Can you connect me to Jimmy? Sure thing. I'll just unplug this and plug that in there. There you go. You hear Jimmy and as you said, then listen to the conversation. But it just doesn't seem that efficient compared to the automatic switch telephone exchange and even other things. I mean, we used to light lamps along the streets in a Mm. big city rather than flick a switch or have them automatically come on. Mm. I mean, there's some of these jobs there, pin setters. There used to be people who were employed to set the pins in a 10-pin bowling alley. (laughs) Again, that's all automated now. So I think it's okay that we've had progress But what are the jobs that I think now are going to be under threat as we go forward? Well, I picked out a few. 
drivers is one. Now, you might think I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here because autonomous cars are some way away. But if you're a bus driver, a car driver, a truck driver, especially on regular routes, Mm. you might be somewhat threatened. We've already got driverless taxis, for example, a couple of places around the world have got driverless taxis. If you're a taxi driver or an Uber driver, Mm. maybe you haven't got a lot of years left in that occupation. Even couriers, because we've got the the drones doing a lot of that couriering. Well, that's exactly right, and I did, that was one of the other occupations. Oh, sorry, I've jumped the gun there. No, that's fine, because it is, it, it links into that delivery drivers, and then the drivers of those delivery vehicles or other methods of delivering via So you talk about drones, you talk Mm. about small robotic devices that are out there doing those deliveries, especially a delivery that's a a standard run, a standard you're going from A to B. That seems to be much easier rather than going on random locations like a taxi might go, for example. But if you're a driver at the moment and you're thinking you're going to have a a long future in that driving game, maybe just plan for a medium-term future rather than a long-term future. So that was one that I thought of. Pilots, we talked about it recently with Airbus working on some of their Dragonfly technology. So if you're a pilot, well, maybe if they get to the stage where there's one pilot in a plane rather than two, and I know that sends shivers down the spines of so many people, (laughs) that might happen. That means that even though they talk about a pilot shortage coming up, if you suddenly halve the number of pilots you need because all these planes can have one, not two people in them. Maybe that just means we can have double the amount of planes in the air. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. So pilots, I wouldn't There's say tear up your pilot ambitions yet, but maybe, again, if you want to have 40 years piloting a plane, mm, mm. maybe not so much. Keep in mind, we, we talked about it before, the number of people that used to be in the cockpit of a plane, we used to have five in the cockpit. Yeah. We're now down at two. We seem to survive that transition getting down to one, getting into zero, zero. Actually, I think we will get down to zero in the near future with delivery planes, maybe not so much passenger planes. That's so when a you, fair leap of faith, it, isn't it? It is a very big leap of faith. Writers, that we've talked about, chat, GPT, maybe some marketing types, maybe not so much students, but maybe marketing people who have to write that ad copy for those new ads that are going out. Imagine chat, GPT, having access to all the psychology across the world, all the other things that have been written across the world and coming up with a jingle or coming up with a 30-second pitch for a certain product. Gee, people are very creative, but could ChatGPT do that better? I don't know. It's one, again, that writers may be needed in fewer numbers. Retail, checkout, employees, Amazon for many years. Now, I think 2016, they first started their trials. They've had Amazon Go, which is the whole concept of a retail store that you walk in, you fill up your shopping trolley and you walk out. You're not going to have a security guard chasing you down saying, come back, come back, Mr. Eddie, you've Mm. stolen all those products. Automatically with cameras and with sensors on the shelves, they know what you've already picked up. They've already scanned who you are and that's already been debited from your bank account as you walk out the door. So the future for those checkout staff is maybe a little bit limited. Now I'm probably talking about a decade down the track here. The other one that is interesting, and it's one of those own goals perhaps, during COVID, we obviously had the restrictions on cafes, hospitality, and wait staff. Now, when numbers started to come back and restrictions started lifting, it was hard for some of those hospitality locations to get all their wait staff back. So they've gone for the QR code on the table. Mm. So now you just scan the QR code, order from your phone, and then someone brings it out to you. So that's reduced the number of wait staff you might need. But how long before other things, other robots, other devices start delivering those to your table. So the wait staff you might need might be reduced down to 
a lower number, maybe zero-ish. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> it sounds a bit scary. <laughs> and look, there's a few other things. I think you've it's still got... dystopian. <laughs> it is. I think you've still got a few other little things under, say, HR, maybe scanning all those CVs and finding out about those people doing some Facebook stalking or some social media stalking and finding out about them. Imagine having some sort of AI that you said, here are all the CVs, go and check out these people and see who's got a good clean track record before I look <laughs> at employing some of these people. Do some culling. Uh, yeah. Do some culling and then maybe do some of the interview for me and, and even down to maybe even insurance underwriting. I mean, when you think about some of the actuaries that had to go through extensive training and very hard to get into actuary studies in the first place, very well paid people in actuary, but maybe it'll get to the stage where all of that is taken away and you just need the idea of AI just crunching those numbers, looking at all the information, all the data, and giving you what premiums might be for underwriting for insurance. So I don't want to scare people out there, <laughs> but all those things that we might lose, I need to do another segment about all the jobs that we might gain out of this whole new world, this whole technological world going forward. Well, I'm glad you didn't say anything about school teachers just then. Um, yeah. So save that. No, don't, don't. That's not a cue for you, mate. Just back <laughs> off. Back off. Um yeah, so safe job out there, folks, if you want to become a school teacher. Well, I'm very sensitive to the audience I've got immediately in front of me. <laughs> but I do think there is still that place. I, I thought about school teachers and I thought, can I see some way, shape or form they'll be replaced by some technology? But at the moment, I just can't see all the skills that are required by a school teacher being replaced by technology. And there are so many things that are unspoken about the skills that a teacher needs and we are investing the future of our children with school teachers. So do we really want to leave all of that to AI? I'm talking about leaving flying of a plane to AI, but not the, <laughs> not the education of our students to AI. Well, I thank you very much for the wrap there, Matt. As medical science improves and our longevity increases, the role of aged care becomes more and more and more important each year. And what better way to make use of virtual reality technology than taking the aged for a walk down memory lane with virtual nostalgic tours? Sounds like next level therapy, Matt. Reminiscence therapy. It's got a term. It must be serious once it's got a term <laughs> yeah, given to it. Right. And this is exactly what they're trying in aged care facilities using VR headsets to let people in these facilities remember things about their childhood if they've got some photos or videos of that, remember things about their kids, even remembering back some of their favourite TV shows. And so what happens in aged care is they might interview some of these people or they might interview the family of some of these people to gather some data, gather some information. Obviously from the family might ask for a few videos or even just go and do some videos, interview one of the grandkids, that type of thing. So then when they're sitting around in the general waiting area where they might play a bit of bingo or do some jigsaw puzzles. They might just put the VR headset on and put their name in and say, just give me a bit of a trip down memory lane. And again, what they're seeing so far is by doing this, this reminiscence therapy, this whole immersive experience, it's actually keeping the minds of some of the people in aged care a bit more active. And it's the old use it or lose it idea. Yeah. While you're using it, while you're remembering these things, while you're doing things, then you're more likely to stay a bit more alert and a bit more active. So it does sound interesting. We think of VR, don't we, as kids playing games, battling it out with each other from people across the world. But just imagine walking into a common area of an aged care facility, seeing <laughs> a, a group of people sitting around with their VR headsets on. You'd think that you've just been dropped into some futuristic model of the world. So it does sound quite nice. And I do like the idea that you get to relive some of those things that are important to you in your past. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, folks, how are you all travelling in listener land so far? How's your anxiety about the next two decades going? Well, try this story on for size. It's probably not going to help. The first driverless bus in the UK has taken a tour across Edinburgh's Forth Road Bridge. Matt, driverless technology is here, and it's new, and it's on to its way to becoming normalised. We only just talked about it a couple of we stories ago didn't, didn't about we? one yes. of the jobs at risk. <laughs> and this is one of those ones that does work really well with a driverless scenario. A bus route goes from point A to point B, stopping at these various spots along the way. Yes, it's got to contend with traffic, but often you'll have dedicated bus lanes, so Um. it's easier and easier for a bus driver to go from point A to point B. Repeat that over and over. Basically, keep doing that all day. Do that efficiently. Do that safely. Hold on. What about if we just program a bus to do that? And again, keep an eye out for pedestrians, other cars, red lights, that type of thing. But it seems like a fairly obvious thing to start with. I feel like they're going to start with a lot more of these rather than, say, a truck that might take freight from one side of the country to the other. Again, this here seems like a fairly obvious one. Now, they put a a group of people on there. They were told that this is a driverless bus. There was a person sitting in the driver's seat, but he sat back with his arms folded. The world's easiest job for a bus driver. (laughs) Sit back, don't touch anything unless there's something that's about to happen. And and it could be the easiest job for uh, five or six years or so while people just get used to the fact that... There's they no want one to, driving the bus. You've still got to have someone there, though, don't you? And that's <laughs> what they'll do for a period of time. I'm not yeah. sure how long. But they interviewed someone and someone said, oh, look, I wasn't worried about it at all. You wouldn't know the difference between this and a normal bus from the driving. And that's how it should be. I imagine they've spent a lot of time getting the acceleration and the deceleration to be the same as a normal bus driver. You don't want to make it look different. Hopefully the reflex are a bit faster. Hopefully if something jumps out in front of the bus of a person or another car. Hopefully the reflexes are faster for an automatic bus or a driverless bus than a human. Hopefully it doesn't get distracted. But again, there are so many things that could go wrong with this. But this is the start. This is the first one in the UK. It's only a 14-mile route, this particular one. It travelled at speeds up to 50 miles an hour. So, you know, it's clipping along at a fair old pace there. And they're expecting this bus will do about 10,000 journeys per week. That seemed like a big number to me. That seems like a lot of times going back and forth along that route. (laughs) Fourth bridge road. Fourth fourth road bridge, I should say. Fourth road bridge. So that seems like a lot. But again, that's the first one. Those bus drivers out there, maybe they'll become Luddites and destroy the driverless buses. Maybe they'll protest. The union will get involved somewhere. Mm. I'm not sure. But this is the future. This is the future we're talking about. And these buses at this stage, I couldn't find out data on this one, but I imagine that if this one isn't, then at least future ones will be EVs as well, or electric buses, not EVs, EBs, electric buses as well, because it seems to me that when they put the modern technology into these, they're going with what is the next version of these buses, which is typically electric. So a whole range of things there to be I'm getting a mental picture in my head here of you getting on a bus and you see the bus driver sitting there in in the seat, driver's seat, but he's only got one of those toddler's little uh, dashboards that you give them in the car for the long trips and it's got the steering wheel and it's got maybe like an indicator lever and a whole lot of buttons to press and and bells to ring and whatnot. And nothing works. And nothing works. Nothing's attached to it. It just makes people feel comfortable (laughs) with it. (laughs) You might be right. Maybe they'll do that to make people feel comfortable. But it'll be really interesting when they first get to that point when the first bus goes without the person as a safety net in the bus. And Mm. I don't think that's that far away and it's really about the comfort level for people. Of course, folks, airlines are a major contributor to CO2 emissions, so any way that this can be cut down is a step in the right direction. We've already had a story about this today already. 
Um, now, sometimes it's required clever heads from different teams to come together to, to develop solutions. Matt, what is NASA collaborating with Boeing about now? Well, most people think of NASA as a space agency, mm. but NASA themselves say that, no, we're not a space agency, we're an aviation agency. Mm. Sure, we happen to go into space as well, but we do often work on things. So the tips, the wing tips that you see on planes now, that suddenly there was one plane that we had these strange little bent bits on the end, and now every plane you get on seems to have mm. the strange little wing tiplets or winglets, I think they're called. That was something that NASA developed, and they developed that to make the aircraft slightly more fuel efficient, and next thing you know, it's across the whole aviation industry. So that's one of their little wins that they point to in terms of them being an aviation agency rather than just a space agency. What they're working on at the moment with Boeing is a more efficient way for planes to fly, and they've done some testing, which I'll come to in a moment, but what they've been able to achieve so far is 30% less fuel usage for a typical long-haul flight. Now, that Sounds pretty impressive. Mm. Yes, we've talked about going to hydrogen, but even with hydrogen, if you can use 30% less of whatever that fuel is, whether it be conventional jet fuel or whether it be hydrogen, then surely that sounds like a good thing. What they've done, which I find quite fascinating, is they've looked at the amount of drag created by the plane, and most of the drag is by the actual wing. The depth of the wing from the front to the back of the wing helps with the lift of the plane, obviously, but also has drag. And when you look at that, you say, well, why don't we make it shorter from the front to the back of the actual wing itself, because that'll be less drag. But if you do that, you get a wing that's not strong enough to mm. A, hold itself up and B, hold the plane up, because essentially the air is holding that plane up by the wings. That's right. Yeah. You reduce that depth of it, if you like, the depth from front to back, there's not enough strength there. But surely you wouldn't get the lift either. That would also, yeah. Anyway, that's sorry. Pa- well, that's, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. But no, but that's that's part of what NASA's working on. But what they've done in part of the first part of their design is they've gone back to almost some of the original planes, some of those original designs that you saw for planes where they would have something as simple as a strut that would go so that the wing would go across the top of the plane, so almost like it was sitting on the top of the tube of the plane, and then you've got bracing that goes down to the bottom part of the plane to give it the strength that it needs while it's got that thinner profile from front to back. It all sounds pretty hmm. simple. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, surely just make it a bit thinner from front to back. I know the wing collapses, therefore we put a brace in and away we go. That's the design they're working on at the moment. So that would change the look of planes quite dramatically because we are kind of used to how planes, whether they're Airbus planes or Boeing planes or a range of those big jet airliners, they all look same-ish. There's subtle differences there. This would be a completely different look for those planes. I'm, I'm thinking now, like uh, Charles Kingford, Kingford Smith's his um, plane, the Southern Cross. Yeah, it had those struts that were lifting, and the and the wing at the top. The top, that's right. Yeah, and we're going bracing. back to that. We're going back to that. So they had it right a long time ago. But as we move forward, we went, no, no, we can do this better. We can make it wider. We've got all these new materials. Isn't this wonderful? But now what NASA's finding in their testing is, well, actually making it a bit thinner, still getting the lift they require. I imagine they'd probably have some extended flaps for that. You need that extra lift at takeoff, obviously, so you've got that ability to get off the ground at lower speeds. But I imagine that's all part of the testing they're doing. But Mm. you're getting that stage where the wing is thinner from front to back, putting some bracing in, and you'd get in that plane, you'd go, gee, where'd they find this old plane from? But this is potentially a modern design. Now, it's not in production yet. They're working with Boeing to see how can we do things differently. It's all about improving the efficiency, all about producing less CO2. But we think about it in terms of different engines. We think about Mm. different things that we're doing. But 
just by changing that, if they can make it 30% more efficient, well, I imagine airlines would be pretty happy as well because you still have to yeah. pay for the fuel, whatever the fuel is. And with the travelling public, well, that probably means our tickets are a little bit cheaper as well. So it sounds good all around with something that seems like a bit of an old-fashioned step. Mm, everything old is new again. Perhaps. And just like that, the swell has died down and this tech talk and wave has gifted all that it can for us for another week. Time to load up the Sandman and grab a Calippo from the milk bar. Thanks for the ride, Matt. It was truly bodacious. Mmm, Calippo. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of the nostalgic VR. I'd love to revisit the 80s for a bit, climbing our old walnut tree and reading comic books, listening to compilation tapes, maybe tearing into an ice-cold sunny boy. Bring on the nursing home, I say. Bring it on. That's all we have for you this week, folks. Thanks for tuning in for yet another Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I'm James Eddy, and it's a pleasure to bring you this cosy little podcast each week. And we're genuinely grateful for your company. We hope, you catch, hope to catch you again for another week's time. Take care until then, and have a great week.